I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. We're two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hi, Eve. Hey, Kieran. How are you? What's up with you? Um, this that you can talk a about. lot. I can't talk about anything. Let's just say that, like, I feel like I can't breathe and it's all good stuff. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that's that's the best the to best way be to have that. Continued. Cool. Maybe by the time this comes out, I'll be able to tell y'all, but not yet. Very exciting stuff, though. In the meantime, we have something else exciting happening today here. We've got a wonderful guest with us who's in a fight with Focus on the Family, and we like that. So, Yeah, that's super cool. Sheila, you want to introduce yourself? <laughs> I am known for really weird things. I don't know. <laughs> but yes, I am I am Sheila Ray Gregoire. I'm the host of the Bear Marriage Podcast. I uh, blog at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. I've been talking about sex and marriage, especially in Christian circles, for like over a decade now. But in the last two years, I've been focusing specifically on how evangelical bestsellers have really hurt women's marital and sexual satisfaction. And we just decided to do the biggest survey that has ever been done of Christian women, 20,000 women, 130 questions minimum. If you're married before, it was more than that. So this was like at least half an hour of 20,000 women's lives. And uh, because we wanted major data and we were able to identify exactly which teachings are toxic and then which of the bestsellers are toxic. And we're just naming names. (laughs) I love it so much. All the titles that, that are cool. <laughs> all the titles that are in this book, um, which I uh, have all marked up on my desk here, are in a pile on my floor in my evil books pile that I have for research <laughs> purposes. <laughs> and it's I have I have like a, I have an evil book like shelf on, mm-hmm. on on my in my bookcase, but it's behind doors, so you yes. can't see it. And I have <laughs> yes. like a whole ton there too. Usually, yeah. I keep it in in my spare room. But right now we're actively using them, so <laughs> they're all on the yeah. floor. <laughs> um, so you want to tell us a little bit about the survey? Like, how did you start doing this? Um, yeah. What, it, what was it like? What did you find? Okay. So one January afternoon, 2019, I had a migraine and I didn't want to work. And I was on Twitter and people were fighting about respect. Like a lot of women were saying, well, I need respect, not just love. And the thesis of one of um, the best-selling books, Love and Respect, is that men need respect while women need love. And so you need to give them the right one. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, like I'm a woman and I need respect too. And then I realized I did have that book in my bookshelf of shame that I, but I'd never actually read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went and got it and I turned to the sex chapter because that's really what I write about is sex. And it's only about nine pages long, but wow. I read, I read, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. So first of all, sex is in the men section. Like it's what men need. Mm-hmm. It's not in the women's section at all. It's not mentioned at all in what women need in a marriage. So if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. Um, He has a need for physical release through sexual intimacy, um, while she has a need for emotional release. I don't know what that means. Like, I picture Sandra (laughs) Bullock in the proposal. You know that scene in the proposal where she's with Betty White in the woods? Yes. Yes. Like, that's what I I picture emotional release as being. What is an emotional orgasm? Please do tell. I do not know. (laughs) 
<laughs> I do not know. So she needs emotional release. He needs physical release. He'll come under satanic attack if he doesn't get physical release. Um, why Ew. would you deprive him of something which takes such a short amount of time but makes him so happy? Um, Most men... Yeah, me too. <laughs> Most men who have affairs do so because they're not getting sex and women need to understand his struggle with lust if they expect him to understand her body image issues. Mm. And that was the entire chapter. So like, and I'm not yeah. even exaggerating. So there was, no, there was yeah. zero. I mean, I wrote it. <laughs> yeah, I also got yeah. this as like marriage prep. Yeah. Yeah, like zero about the fact that women are supposed to feel pleasure too. There was zero about the fact that women could orgasm there was just nothing about a woman's experience during sex whatsoever. And so I read that and I got really concerned because even though I've been writing in the Christian sphere for years, I'd never read the books because I, I have this real fear of plagiarizing. Hmm. So hmm. I hadn't read the And I called my team and I'm like, and I was just, I was just sending them screenshots all afternoon and FaceTiming and, yeah, and yeah. just freaking right out. And that's when we decided we needed to do something. We started to look at other books, saw that this was not the only bad one. And so we just thought we want to do this right because there hasn't been a lot of proper research in the Christian sphere. Like, can I just tell you, this has nothing to do with the Great Sex Rescue, our book, okay? Uh -huh. But can I just tell you about the survey that Love and Respect was based on? Yes, please. Please. Also, please just like know that we come from the homeschool data world and we understand how bad the data in this universe is and how bad and the how surveys are. How hard it is to get, yeah. Okay, so um, Shanti Feldon, um, who's <laughs> written the books for women only, for men only, for young women only, um, all, those, all those books. Mm -hmm. um, in 2004, she did a survey. She paid for it. So she paid for a survey expert to do this survey. A thousand um, men. So it was a nationally representative survey of a thousand men. And she asked them, would you rather be alone and unloved or inadequate and disrespected? Okay. So that was the question. Screaming. Wow. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. And as she only had about 480 people and I'm, I, I might have that part wrong. I, I, I'm pretty sure it was under 500 and over 400. So, but, so it was somewhere around there that many men answered that question. She was told by the pilot group that people didn't know what that meant. That, so she was told by the survey expert that it was not a good question. Duh. She admitted in for women only that men were confused as to which one they should choose. But she felt that that confusion proved her thesis, which was that to men, respect is love. Uh, okay. No, now, no. when you're asking a survey question, you sh you're, it's very bad form to use a double-barreled response. Mm -hmm. And by double-barreled, what I mean is you have two options in one response. Mm -hmm. So would you rather be alone and unloved or inadequate and disrespected. You don't know if they're responding to the unloved or the alone right. or mm -hmm. the inadequate or the disrespected. Like mm -hmm. which one is it? But that is what she based it on. And what she found was that I think it was 74% of men said that they would rather be alone and unloved than disrespected. And so she took that to mean that men have a greater need for respect than love. Emerson Egrich uses that survey as the basis for love and respect. But there's something interesting. They never asked women. Right. Of course not. Why would, why would you ask why, a woman why? about these things? Right. Women so exist, his, remember? his proof that women want love is the greeting card industry. 
What? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> what? So we do swear on this podcast. So what the actual fuck? I don't. So I then, don't... <laughs> oh, no, no. It gets better. It gets better. Are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? Okay. Probably not. So but... then a bunch of people in psychology today see this and they're appalled. And so they decide that they're going to survey women asking exactly the same question. And guess what? <laughs> 68% of women also chose alone and unloved, that they would rather be alone and unloved than disrespect. So virtually the same amount. Now, I think it was only like 60% when they asked all women, but the more educated women were, the more they chose alone and unloved versus mm -hmm. inadequate and disrespected. So he writes this entire book based on an invalid survey question of just over 400 men that Doesn't had never asked women. of Brian Ray at all. No. You know, and so I... Yeah. And so what we decided was we just, we want to do actual research. Mm -hmm. And so on my team, I have an epidemiologist. She's a statistician. She does she, like, she knows what she's doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we had these 20,000 responses and, and while a lot of our stuff is published in the great sex rescue, not all of it is like, seriously, we have so much data. We've never mind. Like, like, yeah, we I can, can imagine. we could be, we can be working with this data set for the next 20 years. Is just, sorry, quick question. Is that mm -hmm. data set um, available, publicly available? It, or? it will be, um, okay. not publicly, but it will be for university research. Um, um, it's going up in the ARDA, which stands for the, ah, what is it? Religious, uh, academic religious data something out of the University of Indiana, I believe. Um, oh, Andrew Whitehead yeah, runs I, it. Yeah. Yeah. And and so Andrew Whitehead is partnering with us on on an academic paper to sort of debut our data. And then we're also working on a bunch of other papers, including with some pelvic floor physiotherapists based on what we found about sexual pain. So mm -hmm. we're really trying to raise the bar. Like we're, what we're trying to say is, look, if you're going to give advice, it can't be based on your personal experience. And it, especially when it's something about sex, which, you know, this is hard stuff. This is medical stuff. Yeah. This is not just... Like it, it encompasses a whole bunch of different areas. And just because you're, you've got an MDiv and just because you have personal experience does not mean that you can tell people what to do. Yes. You need to use peer reviewed research. So we're just trying to raise the bar. We're trying to, we're trying to say, Hey, if we're going to do this, we got to do it right. I like, it's so refreshing and radical. Like I, you know, I'm sitting here looking at, at this book and this, the, you know, coverage of it and I'm and I'm coming from a you know deep in the queer and trans sex writer journalist community and I'm like this isn't going far enough but like backing all the way up to where I come from I know so well that this is just going to, to this is blowing everything out of the water in that this world that is so retrograde in ways that it it needed 50 years ago. It's incredible. <laughs> Seriously, like the you are you are pushing the needle. It would have if I had been given this book instead of all of the other books that I got, I probably would have felt a lot better about like cuz I had vaginismus, of course, obviously, uh and mm. had all that guilt and everything associated with it. And so if this had been around like 12 years ago, 
mm-hmm. I think I would have been in a much better place instead of having and like we worked through that in my marriage but like yeah it would it would have changed my life um in a lot of different ways so thank you for writing it and for doing all of that work holy shit this is the sort of thing that I feel like I can hand back to my mom and other people who are still in that world who are like you know they 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 don't want to disturb their position in their communities because their communities are really important to them and they haven't lost them yet. Unlike me and Kieran, where we, we got forced out. And so they haven't rocked the boat much, but they have questions and they have thoughts and they're in this, they're in this direction and giving them data would be so empowering and so huge. And so I, I'm just really excited that this exists. And, and for a second, this like kind of goes back to the, uh, love and respect thing because so a survey of 1000 men is <laughs> woefully inadequate but can you tell me how many pages there are in that book based off of that minute data sample oh i think there's like what 313 or something yeah it's a lot I don't, it's, I'm, I'm i'm going by memory i don't know it's something on my like floor that. it's yeah. an inch and a half thick yeah it's not yeah. a short small book it's like a lot has mm-hmm. been extracted from this mm-hmm. ridiculous question and it's sold I don't even know how many oh, copies. Oh, 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 you want to hear another stat thing about love and respect? You're going to love this Absolutely. one. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Um, the only peer-reviewed research that he quotes in love and respect, and he quotes it quite a bit, is the John Gottman Institute out of the University of Washington. And I love John Gottman. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like I, I truly do. He, he does great work on marriage. And Egrich, Emerson Egrich, the author of Love and Respect, does quote him. One of the things he quotes John Gottman as saying, like Egrich literally says, I am one of the 85% of men that Gottman finds is a stonewaller. And he talks about how he stonewalls. Now, stonewalling is um, what Gottman calls one of the four horsemen of the marriage apocalypse. So it's one of the four. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's one of the four things that that will cause marriages to break down. There's stonewalling, contempt. I forget what they all are. It's not the point. Anyway, but what stonewalling means is when you when communication breaks down, like you just refuse to communicate. So you're mm-hmm. in the middle of a conflict and you just completely shut down mm-hmm. and you refuse to engage. And so this is a very bad thing. And so and so Egrich says he's one of the 85% of men who stonewalls. And he says this in the book. Um, he said it in a sermon in Houston in 2019. It's on YouTube. I listened to it. He says it repeatedly in his blog post that 85% of men are stonewallers. What Gottman found is that 85% of stonewallers are men. <laughs> <laughs> what is reading comprehension? Okay. So like, I'm sorry, like my 95... like college freshman could do better. My college freshman students could yeah. do better than that. 95% of men are murderers. No, 95% of murderers are men. Like it's not the same thing. <laughs> and if it is the same thing, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, there's right? a lot like, more about it. Wow. Like, and so, no. um, but you know, this is the level that we're dealing with here. Like they don't know basic stats. Emerson Eggert has a PhD. He has a PhD. In what? Okay. Um, psycho- I, I'm I sorry. Think psychology. <laughs> that was for him, not you. You know what? I'm actually not sure. Um, we have read his PhD. Okay. Let me, uh, let me pull this of- book off my, the bottom. Is it the bottom of my pile? Give me a minute. I, I've got it. <laughs> 
we have read it. We haven't spoken publicly about this. We'd like to make an issue out of this at some point, but I'll, I'll say it here for you guys. But he looked at what what qualities make a good evangelical father like like and and so he um oh, no. he talked he he asked a bunch of evangelical churches for them to nominate a good father in their church and then he looked at what qualities all of the fathers exhibited and that was his phd the only thing is that the fathers are 100% white of course <laughs> so wow. you want to know what his phd is in yes sure okay he has a ma in communications from wheaton an MDiv from Dubuque, and a PhD in child and family ecology from Michigan State University. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is yeah. to say, it didn't need to be all white. Yeah, right. No, I know no. that exactly. I, I know where that is. That doesn't need to be all white. <laughs> yeah, but like you cannot. I mean, I I have. I've got postgraduate degrees as well. You you can't do a postgraduate degree without doing some amount of of peer reviewed research, mm-hmm. like and 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 knowing something about statistics. At least I couldn't, but maybe he just maybe maybe his program wasn't very rigorous. I don't know. The power of like mediocre cis white men to just flop into <laughs> degrees baffles me. Yeah. So I anyway. So we, I was just very dismayed at the fact that this book could become the second best-selling marriage book in the evangelical world. The five love languages is more, mm-hmm. sells more, but I don't know. It's innocuous. It doesn't really matter. It's, um, it's but love so and, bad, but it's not even worth paying attention to. Yeah. But love and respect is the most used marriage group study in churches. It's the most used marriage conference material. Like this, this is what churches use. And that is the quality of scholarship in that, that is- book. So horrifying. I mean, it was horrifying. Like when I read it, I stopped reading it because I was like, one, Transon didn't know it. So all of the gender stuff made zero sense to me. It was like, why is this separate? But two, also, why is that separate? Like women also need sex. And it was just like, it was so horrifying. Like, this is not, this wasn't the relationship that I had with my partner at the time. And it certainly wasn't the kind of relationship that I wanted with my partner at the time. So I was very confused about like, why this was being so revered and given to me almost as if it was like God's word on marriage. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's such a horrifying and it's more horrifying now knowing like how, how pathetically little bit of like just the inability to comprehend a sentence <laughs> made this entire book. Yeah. And um, when I started writing about it, I, I, I spent a week on my blog writing about the problems with love and respect back in 2019. We started on the Monday, I wrote about all the problems I had with the sex chapter. And I said, if you readers want, I'll keep going. And the response was astronomical. So I started writing with my problems with the whole idea that men need unconditional respect, which I said leads to abuse. And I gave all kinds of examples in the book that lead to abuse. Um, And where he enables abuse and doesn't recognize abusive, what he's describing is abuse. Because Mm -hmm. Um, like respect is is synonymous with total authority. Exactly. And it actually is. And it is, well, it, it, it literally is. Um, women have to give men respect, which he has an acronym, CHAIRS, and the H in CHAIRS is hierarchy, the A is authority. Wow. Um, 
So you need to get, you need to give him hierarchy and authority and you need to honor his insight. That's the I, which means that you don't listen to your own intuition. You, you defer to him Mm -hmm. and, and to do anything other than that is disrespectful. And, and he gives repeated examples throughout the book of when his wife wanted him to change and spoke up about something. And, and the moral of the story was she was being disrespectful. So when she wanted him to stop leaving wet towels on the bed, the solution was that she stopped asking because that was disrespectful. So I want to scream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so we wrote, we wrote to focus on the family and they ignored us. Yeah. And, and then we just decided that we were going to go big. We, and, and at this point, I don't expect focus on the family to listen to me. What, what I'm trying to do instead. Just for our listeners. Yeah. Uh, focus on the family is the publisher of this book. That's why that's important here. Yeah. They're kind of the co-publisher, like, but it's, they're also their biggest, like it's Thomas Nelson, but it's mm-hmm. done with, it, it's, it's kind of a weird arrangement. They're on the logo. So, yeah. Their logo's on the, the, the spine here. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I actually have the same publisher for some of my books, so it's it's very funny. <laughs> That's hilarious. Make them squirm. So, focus on the family does promote love and respect really heavily, and and his book Mothers and Sons, which teaches mothers how to respect their sons. Oh yeah, don't even get me started. Oh, God, don't I even know. get me started about how gross that one is. Ew. Yeah, yeah, yeah don't even get me started. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it really isn't only love and respect. It, it's, I mean. Most of the evangelical bestsellers are highly problematic. Not all of them. Boundaries in Marriage scored very highly. Gift of Sex by the Penner scored well on our, our 12-point rubric of healthy sexuality. So it's not that all of the books were bad, just the vast majority of right. them. Right, just most and of the, them. And, and, and in general, the bestsellers were the worst. No shit. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I mean, it really, it makes me really, really upset. Like, like yeah. Karen, you were saying that you had vaginismus, like that's my story too. And to be honest, that was one of the big reasons we wanted to do the survey is because there are journal articles from the 1970s in Ireland talking about how conservative Christian women have a higher rate of vaginismus, but not understanding why. So mm-hmm. this has been well known in the literature for over 50 years. Well, yeah. I mean, if you, if you dig in, I don't know if you've read The Body Keeps the Score, but that's a book that I find yes. incredibly useful. And if you're familiar with the the work he's pulling from, like that somatic connection is vital and how you think about sex and your relationship with your body theologically is going to determine how you're able to engage in pleasure. Like, and the evangelical theological rubric around the body and pleasure is just really bad. <laughs> It's so bad. Yeah, but what but what we wanted to know is what in particular is it? Like mm-hmm. we wanted to pinpoint what are the actual teachings? Like 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 it's not just being a Christian. Okay? Mm-hmm. Like it's or or even it's not just the fact that, you know, um Christians might be afraid be be ashamed of sex or something like like what is the actual like teaching that is that does the harm. And that's what we were able to pinpoint. And that's what we're talking to a lot of pelvic floor physiotherapists about. And we're developing a tool to help them, you know, isolate this and and, and talk through with their patients and mm-hmm. stuff because it's such a prevalent problem. But it comes down to there, there's a number of different teachings that elevate the risk of vaginismus, but the primary one is the obligation sex message. The mm-hmm. idea that you are obligated to give him sex when he wants it. Um, mm-hmm. And that is virtually the same statistical effect on the rates of vaginismus as prior abuse. Because 
abuse says you don't matter. He has the right to use you however he wants. And the obligation sex message says the same thing. It's it, just like you said, it's yep. the body keeps the score. It's the traumatic message. And our bodies interpret it as trauma because it is. And I'll just add to that, you know, the world that we come from is very heavy on corporeal punishment. And so mm-hmm. the the research that I have found also suggests that spanking is recorded in the body as sexual abuse. And so if you're coming from that world, it's going to push mm-hmm. you further in that direction a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like we found a vaginismus rate of 22%, which is really high. Yeah. You know, now that that was all kinds of sexual pain. So it wasn't only vaginismus. So, but we do know the vaginismus is the most common form mm-hmm. of sexual pain. There are others, um, like in sclerosis, uh, vulvodynia, repeated UTIs, like all kinds of things. But but vaginismus is the most common. And we found a rate of 22%, which is really high, and 7% to the point that penetration was impossible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That and was me. Yeah, me too. So again, but much higher, much higher than the general pop. Okay. So that brings yeah. me to like kind of our, our biggest question that we wanted to ask you. Uh, how do you define sex? Because- we have found that the further away from this world we have gotten and the more comfortable we've gotten with our own gender and sexual journeys, the more our definition of what sex is has mm-hmm. um, fallen apart and been reshaped in a very different um, direction. It's expanded, I would it's say. It's expanded, yeah. 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 And that's actually one of the things we really talk about in the book is that we need to expand our definition because our definition of sex is largely intercourse. And you mean by intercourse, you mean penetrative sex. Yes. Male male genitalia. Yes. But the problem with that definition, even in heterosexual marriages, is that she could be lying there making a grocery list in her head. You know, she could be lying there in emotional turmoil. She could be lying there in physical pain and it would still count as sex. Like her experience is completely not included in our normal definition of sex. It's simply something that he does that he gets pleasure from and she is incidental to it. And that's why there's a verse that's often used, the second most weaponized Bible verse against women. Mm -hmm. And it's from 1 Corinthians 7, where it says, do not deprive one another except uh, by mutual consent and for a time. I actually don't mind that verse at all. I think if you actually look at what it's saying, it's a very helpful verse, but not the way that it's been used. (laughs) Yeah, Because the way that it's been used is women, you're not allowed to say no to well, sex, but if we're defining sex as one-sided intercourse, she's already friggin' being deprived. You quote Carolyn Mahaney when you talk about this, this verse in particular, yep. and her, her, I think there was a 2009 sermon that she gave or talk, talk you know, because women don't give sermons. Two um, women. It was two women. Yeah. Two women. Um, so she gave, she was talking about this where it was like, it's only for pre-agreed upon times of prayer and fasting, right? And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's important to note. And this is something that like we're going to talk about in our other project is that Carolyn Mahaney, her husband, CJ, often talked about in his sermons how she's never turned him down for sex. It was something he would go back to all the time. And this woman had multiple hip surgeries. (laughs) And I just the amount wow. of rage I have about those facts and what that suggests is mm-hmm. off the charts. 
And so, yeah, it's, it's the, sons. And, and it's we also need worst. to say, we all, I, I also want to say whenever his name is brought up, it needs to be also said publicly that he covered up child sexual abuse. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, he, right. everyone I just, who listens to I, this I mean, knows that I will never forgive Sovereign okay. Grace Ministries for covering pedophilia. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I just, yes, I just, I just can't let his name go by without mentioning No, that, that's so. important. You, you, he, does, <laughs> he deserves every bit of that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's heartbreaking. And so, yeah, so your question about how would I define sex, what the way that I say is we need to go back to first principles. And sex is supposed to be something which I believe is pleasurable. So it's physically pleasurable. It's something which is mutual. So it's about both of you together. Um, it's not just about, you know, one person using another. <laughs> it's mutual. And it's something which is intimate. So it's something that brings you together. How would and you so define proper intimate? Sex, you need to feel, it needs to be something which is enhancing your feeling of closeness, not something which is taking away from your feeling of closeness. Okay. So it can't be something where one person is feeling used or discarded or objectified. Like it needs to be something which is building up your relationship, not taking away from the relationship. And for many, especially the women in our survey, sex was not something which was intimate. Mm-hmm. It was something, you know, which made them feel used. Um, I think, oh gosh, I'm going to get this number wrong. It's something like 16% of women said their primary emotion after sex was feeling used. Oof. I, you know, and, I imagine and, and that's not okay. That a lot of people, a lot of women um, reading this book and figuring out consent will have an experience similar to mine, which was that upon looking back on my marriage, realizing that there were a lot of situations that were not consensual. And I don't know how to code those in my memory because we didn't know shit about consent, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. those were traumatic and, uh, you know, functionally a violation of, um, you know, my, my consent, my autonomy. And, and I'm sure that like, that was not mm-hmm. just me that was experiencing that. Um, I'm sure you're having lots of conversations with people who are like, shit, a lot of my marriage was rape. How is that? <laughs> how are yeah. you, how are you f- shaping that conversation? Yeah, that was a large part of our book. And that was honestly the the most difficult part of our research. We, we did a lot of focus groups after, so we didn't only do the survey. We did the survey and then uh, we did a number of focus groups. 4,000 women left us their emails saying they wanted to be involved in focus groups. Of those 4,800 said they had stories of marital rape to share. So, you know, that's 20%. That's not representative because mm-hmm. they might've been more likely to leave their email, but that still shows this is a significant, a significant percentage of women where you know, wherever that percentage might land, we know it's not like 1%. Right. It's, it's a large, well, it's this- a large proportion. Um, but in those focus groups, so many of the women told us that they did not know it was rape until their yeah. divorce lawyer named it for them. Right. Mm-hmm. No, I've had that. I've watched that happen so many times. I jokingly yeah. call myself the divorce doula for a lot of my, because I'm the first one of my set, if you will, to get divorced. And I've had so many of my friends who got married the same year-ish that I did come to me later. And like, you know, I've I've kind of given them support through their process that I wish I had had. And one of the things that's happened every single time is just this this moment of realizing 
that they were raped by their, their former spouses. And it's really devastating to watch. And I think it also is like, this is not just a church problem. This is a larger conversation that we're having with the, the me too stuff. And like the, I don't know if you remember the cat person essay in the New York essay story in the New Yorker two years ago, where it's like, you know, what's the line between bad sex and sexual assault and how are we talking about this mm-hmm. and how black and white are we going to be and it's it's really really hard to talk about mm-hmm. my dedication so i wrote i wrote the great sex rescue with my daughter rebecca mm-hmm. who is a psychometrics person and joanna swatsky who's um our statistician and they both dedicated the book to their children mm-hmm. that we would that we would uh create a better world for them but i dedicated the book to aunt matilda and can I tell you about Aunt Matilda? Yes, <laughs> please. So Aunt Matilda is a woman who's in Tim LaHaye's book, The Act of Marriage. The Act of Marriage was written in 1976. It was the first big evangelical book about sex. And it, it, it was a bestseller well into 2000. Okay? Like it's st- and it still sells very well. Uh, it's been updated four times. The latest update was, I think, 1998. And that's the version that I read. Those who don't know, Tim LaHaye is the same guy who did The Left Behind. Yes, yes, he is. I read The Act of Marriage before I was married, and I, I really actually feel that it's responsible for, largely responsible for my vaginismus. Hmm. Um, so that was actually quite an interesting journey looking hmm. at our survey results, and because and, I didn't realize that. I've never quite understood my own, like what I went through until I had done the survey. So even 30 yeah. years down the road, that was interesting in a self discovery way. But he tells this story of this young woman who's getting married. And her aunt Matilda comes and tells her that marriage is just legalized rape and that she needs to be careful. And Tim LaHaye talks about this as being a terrible thing, that aunt Matilda is the antagonist in this story. She's the bad person because she's telling her niece how awful sex is. And then he goes on to explain that aunt Matilda was held down, kicking and screaming on her wedding night as her husband raped her. And this happened repeatedly throughout the marriage. And so now Aunt Matilda and her equally unhappy husband had never figured out sex. So he called the rapist equally unhappy as the rape victim. And nobody thought, wow, maybe we should take that anecdote out. And he even used the word rape. Like he used it several times. Jesus Christ. And so I dedicated the book to Aunt Matilda and everybody like her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was when my mom was giving me the talk about about sex. That was more or less how she described it is just sort of like, well, this is something that a man does and it feels good for him and you don't really feel it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, then I don't want to have sex because that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> it sounds terrible. I, I will just say here <laughs> that like that's n- it's not always that bad across the board. I mean, often it is. And but I will t- tell the story that I've probably told before on here about my former mother-in-law who I love dearly, just a real sweetheart. And she, you know, she was not a great sex ed parent to my ex-husband. However, right before our wedding, she gave me a like my first talk about consent without even framing it as being about consent, where she was just kind of like, yeah, you know, you can um, experiment based on what feels good and communicate to each other. And I recommend using a red light, yellow light, green light system to communicate like, 
I don't like this. I'm ambivalent or I love this. And, and just like having that framework was so helpful. And I had, no one had Mm. given me anything like that before. And so, you know, as complicated as it is, like there can be these good moments where, you know, suddenly someone gets it and they give you the tiniest fragment of wisdom and it makes a huge difference. Yeah. I love that. I love that she actually said that. That, you know, she, that she's is like, good because, she, you know. I'm telling too much on her, but she was like, yeah, it revolutionized my marriage when we figured that out. <laughs> I love her. But, you know, one, one of the things that we did was we developed a 12-point rubric for healthy sexuality. So we looked at we looked at our survey results, compiled them. So in our survey, let me back up. I'm doing this all backwards. But mm-hmm. we first asked asked women about their marital satisfaction a lot of questions about that. Then we got up close and personal about their sexual satisfaction. And then we asked them if they had ever heard or if they had ever been taught certain teachings, both before they were married and now, and where they had heard those teachings from. And so then at the end, what we were able to do was compare the teachings with the marital and sexual satisfaction. Mm. So we weren't asking people, did this teaching mess you up? Right. <laughs> right. Right. Like it wasn't subjective in that sense. It was, we were able to, to make big comparisons. Um, and so after we had done that, we, we realized which things were healthy, which things were not. We looked at tons of peer reviewed research and we developed this 12 point rubric of healthy um, sexuality teaching within marriage. And then we applied that rubric to all the top selling evangelical books. Mm-hmm. And the one that the books as a whole scored the worst on was the consent question. Like that was the one that was the most abysmal. And there yeah. was only one book that actually got full marks. It was Boundaries in Marriage. Mm-hmm. But none of the books actually even say the word consent. Yeah, yeah. Boundaries in Marriage did say you can't manipulate someone into doing something, you shouldn't be pressuring, et cetera, et cetera. So it did, it did handle it really well. It just didn't use the word consent, but we gave it full marks. But the other books just didn't really deal with this at all. And in mm. fact, a lot of them used instances of marital rape and didn't call it that. So for instance, the bestseller, His Needs, Her Needs, um, said, as one 32-year-old executive put it, I feel like I'm begging her or even raping her, but I can't help it. I need to make love. See? And then it just left it hanging like that. So many people are responsible for all of the harm that like sentence alone being in that book without any form of like, also, this is bad, by the way. Like, yeah, so, and illegal. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't the only one. Like, even if we're not talking about marital rape in particular, I mean, Every Man's Battle, which, you know, that series sold 4 million copies, really huge. I don't think people outside the evangelical church understand how formative the Every yeah. Man's Battle books were in terms of male sexuality and, and men's problems with lust and porn, et cetera. And that book had so many examples of illegal behavior that they described as if it was normal. Mm-hmm. So masturbating in a gym parking lot in a rental car. Who like that's which is really strangely specific, right? Like, <laughs> like 
Have you ever driven a rental car into a gym parking lot to watch the scantily clad women come out and then masturbated in the car? No. Like, that's oddly specific. I've never once, yeah. that's never occurred to me as something to no. do. And that yeah. kind of also raises something that you also brought up that is hugely, hugely, hugely important is that books like this normalize predatory behavior and groom men mm -hmm. to become mm -hmm. and act predatory because this is just like, oh yeah, no, this is the thing men do. And like, how did you, I mean, reading the books, obviously, but like, that's, no one is talking about that. How did you get there? Yeah, it was hard. Like, honestly, every man's battle was bad, but every heart restored was worse. Every heart restored is um, part of the every man's battle series. It's a book written specifically for women whose husbands are dealing with porn addictions and being really gross. And every heart restored is honestly a worse book. Like I, I couldn't believe how like it was talking about a woman who felt like a human toilet for semen. Oh, and how she was, uh, we actually quoted Every Heart Restored several times and our publisher made us take the quotes out because he felt they were too disturbing. Wow. And yet this book was published. Right. Even though we were publishing it, we were quoting it in order to critique it. Our publisher felt that we, so we, we had to take out about three quotes from Every Heart Restored. And their point was, she might have felt this way, but once she, it was based on an inaccurate understanding of how her husband was made, and she just needed to understand male sexuality mm. and how men are not made like I think I think the quote is men do not naturally have that Christian view of sex. So women are naturally made to have a proper view of things, but men are not. Wow. That's just and they lit they literally say that. Like it's not even it's it's like <sighs> It's not even Orthodox Christian teaching. No. Like, and yet, and yet this has become, and, and every man's battle says something very similar. It says, when you look at male sexual sin, you need to understand that we got there naturally simply by being male. Yeah. That bothers me on so many levels. Like, just to kind of go off on a, on a tangent really quick, the amount of like blaming, like men are victims of their hormones. Mm -hmm. And like, as, as a trans person who's taking testosterone, I can tell you that is not how testosterone works. Like <laughs> I am not, I am not like raging libido can't control myself because of the hormone that I have. And men are actively choosing to do this. It's not because they're wired to be abusive it's because books like this are telling them that's what they should be in order to be men mm -hmm. that's just that's just my yep. peeve with <laughs> with these books as i'm like out and looking back on it is like this is this is a lot of bullshit for many reasons but like it's it's setting cis men up to be like both the most powerful and also the weakest because they're like yes. at the whims of brain chemistry. And that's that's taking out all of the agency and wisdom that they also are supposedly supposed to be imbued with because women are weak and supposed to follow them. And it makes zero sense at all. 
Well, yeah. And, and also the whole, so the message of every man's battle is that every man struggles with lust. Okay. So that, that's the main thesis. Their solution to this is really quite interesting and quite telling. So the way that men are supposed to battle lust is first of all, is they're supposed to take all of their sexual energy and transfer it to their wife. Okay. So it says like when you might've um, gone to her for five bowls of sexual gratification a week, now you come to her for 10 bowls. Mm whatever that means. That's sure. really a gross yeah, kind of way of talking works. about it. Yeah. Um, and so the idea is that, that um, instead of objectifying every woman, you get to objectify one woman for the rest of your life, mm. right? Like that is, that is the ideal. And then it says that what you're supposed to do is bounce your eyes away from other women. And, th- and this phrase is very large. It's used a ton in the evangelical community, bounce your eyes, bounce your mm-hmm. eyes. Um, the problem is that that whole bounce your eyes philosophy treats women in the same way as the lust objectification philosophy does, because it still makes women into only sexual beings. So when a woman is near you, instead of, instead of lusting after her, you're going to bounce your eyes so that you don't lust after her. So you're still treating her only as a sexual object. It's still an objectifying act. It's not a humanizing act. And it's not even biblical. Like those who are trying to follow a biblical sexual ethic, no matter what you might think that is, like, that's not even what Jesus called them to do. Like Jesus said, whoever looks with lust has already committed adultery. It doesn't say whoever looks or whoever sees or whoever notices that she's got nice breasts. Like it doesn't say any of that. Yeah. Um, And Jesus made a point, not of refusing to look at women, but of choosing to truly see women. Yes. And I feel like that is lost. Jesus saw women. Mm -hmm. Like Because women are seen as dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, Mm -hmm. so messed up. And I could sit here and chat with you about all of these things for, for hours. There's so much that like, even I were spending the morning, well, I'm West coast time. So my morning just sort of like going through and being like, Oh my God, there's so much, so much in here. So, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap up cause I know you need to go, but thank you so much for talking about this and doing this work. It is so important. And like, this is a book that I would give my sister-in-laws, you know, and like my younger sisters, uh, instead of literally all of the books that everyone else is is shoving at them. So just sincerely, thank you. This is incredible. And uh, I would love to, to have you on again, because this well is deep and vast and, and there is so much, um, is there anything that you want to share? Where can people find you? Where can people find your book? Um, yeah, your so the great, se- yeah, the great sex rescue everywhere you can buy books. Um, my podcast is Bear Marriage, and that's probably the best place to find me. Just look Bear Marriage podcast or to my websites to love, honor, and vacuum dot com. But you know, my real my real hope is that we'll stop being afraid of data, like. That we'll we'll take we'll stop seeing things solely through an ideological lens, and we'll start asking the question of what actually works and what's actually healthy, because you can measure that. And if you if and I don't think Christians should be scared of that, mm-hmm. because people who truly call themselves Christians, Jesus said 
that you'll know them by their fruit. Like a good tree can't bear bad fruit. A bad tree can't bear good fruit. So we don't need to be scared. Yes. Like if you're so sure you're right, then look at the data. Because if you're right, it's going to have good fruit. And so if if the fruit of everything that someone is teaching is bad, that should be a sign yes. that you're not that you're not doing it right. And we shouldn't be afraid of data. So I'm just hoping that we're going to raise the bar and that people won't be afraid. Or maybe, I mean, I guess certain people are always going to be afraid of data, but I'm hoping that we'll change enough of the culture that people will start saying, hey, you don't just get to say something without some proof to back it yes. up. Yes. Uh, thank you so much. I <laughs> I am also here with you on that. Uh, well, that was fun. That was great. Do we have any notes? Uh, a couple. Uh, this work in this book is excellent for if you have a family member or a friend mm -hmm. who grew up the way we did, who's, you know, neck deep in purity culture and you want to give an alternative that meets them where they're at. Mm -hmm. If you've already been through that, this is not the book for you. It's nice to like see it be backed up with numbers for sure. It's very comforting, but yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's the data is great. 20,000 people in a survey in this community is like unheard of. I, I it, It's still very self-selecting and hard to control, but like um, that's huge. That's huge. Yeah. And they did the best that they could, which yeah. like is great. The way that the questions were set up was not as sketchy. I was like, we stand a data nerd. We do. We really, we really truly do. So it's great. It's I can't like it's something I would be happy to give my my siblings, yeah. um, which is a big deal for me. Um, but but not something that's going to help you if you're like out and queer and living There's your, not your best much life. Else. Yeah, so that's the thing is is this is extremely cis sexual and uh, you know heterocentric and um, you know if you if you are trans uh, or queer your sex does not exist in this book and you know that ref that's it's it taking the culture that we come from on the terms that it exists on and that's how that is so it makes sense but you know a huge big fucking caveat for all of that based on you know that fact yeah I, um but you had a zine you wanted to yeah so this this zine was given to me by one this woman I dated for a little bit who's just lovely and she is a trans sex therapist trans woman who is a sex therapist who also works with trans people and she's lovely and smart and this book was something she gave to me that built on stuff I knew already, but really kind of explained it in a way that was really beautiful and interesting um, and scientific. And the the woman who wrote it is Mira, Bell, Mira Bellwether. And she is a trans woman and was a professor at some point. I don't think she is now, but it's called Fucking Trans Women. And you can find it on Amazon. I don't know that it's available much elsewhere if you're in New York or like Philly like a blue stocking or wooden shoe, the like anarchist queer bookstores will carry it. Usually they'll have like one copy in the back somewhere, but you can also get it on Amazon. It's great. It's explicit. 
it's great. But one of the things that it talks about is basically the fact that the clit and the penis are the same. Yes. It's the same material shaped the same way. And it's just a difference in volume. And so, you know, when you are approaching sex with this like different parts, different needs thing, you get into all of these problems that love and respect, you know, builds off of. And the fundamental assumption that we are like very, very different sexes is just not true, scientifically speaking. And um, really just mm, dangerous, dangerous to play with. So I feel like one of the things that was really nice about that book was it kind of finished up exploding the binaries that I had not really intentionally held, but like accidentally kept holding on to, hadn't looked at, hadn't needed to look at. Like I looked at a lot of them. I had done a lot of unpacking, but it, that really just like, you know, closed the loop. <laughs> Did you know we're made of the same stuff? I mean, I knew we were made of the same stuff, but just like seeing it laid out the way it was and it was just really great. So anyway, I want to recommend that if you are further along and this is, you know, useless for you, like look forward and go find that one. Yes. Yeah, that was great. I enjoyed yeah, her. It's good. Me too. I hope she comes on again. Mm-hmm. Um, this definitely probably won't be the last that we hear from her. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just, <laughs> there was so much in the book that we did not have time to cover. We just, just did like, not have enough time. I have so many questions. Please tell me <laughs> oh more about God. the data. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. I want to see the data. Uh, I think we, that that's the next step is like, please yeah. give me the numbers. Yeah. I, I mean, and I, I think some of it too is because like, because we 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 were partially architects of the modesty survey, so we did try to like work with data in a similar vein. I mean, yeah, terribly. I remember like I was the one who asked the question, like, "Hey, could we go send the guys in what was it, the treehouse or the gra- the garage? The garage, like the these que- some questions about modesty that we've got um, because you know we can't always ask." Because we don't have guy friends, because we're not allowed to, um, right? And then, yeah, helping to start shape those conversations and those questions. God, so much was there. There's just so much there. So much. I'm glad I have screenshots. Yeah, yeah, and I'm glad that there's now data that like kind of builds off of that into why that was bad, actually. And counteracts it. Mm-hmm. I love it. We didn't know what we were doing, and it's nice to see someone who does, you know, working against it. Yeah, and it's it's really refreshing to see someone who is still, like, in that world taking on what is the mainstream of evangelical culture oh, and, like, so turning it on its head. Do. Yeah. Damn. Pissing off focus on the family is, like, that's – you're winning. Gold star. Gold <laughs> Good star, job. Man. Good job. Good job you win. This is great. <laughs> Thank y'all for listening to us uh, ramble on and joining us this time. Thank you so much to Dave the Great for making us sound good every single week. 
And if you like the music on this podcast, that is due to the heavens. The song is Janet from their album Stenazzo. Thank you for letting us use your music. Uh, you can support the podcast and join the Slack by going to Patreon, which is patreon.com slash kitchen table cult pod. We have a good time. There's a lot of real good animal pictures and we, you know, bitch about brains being fragile soup and other things. It's great. You should join us. If you have any questions or comments that are nice or constructive, <laughs> uh, you, can, <laughs> you can email us at kitchentablecult at gmail.com or poke us on Twitter at kitchencultpod. Thanks for listening. As always, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.